Especially. Um, uh, no, I honestly, it's all right. Like, life's not that fucking bad. I don't know. Um, yeah, I was like, I was thinking about it recently. I, uh, you know, I'm sick of this fucking, um, the love of animals. People. <laughs> yeah. Hey, if I can't get you, I can't get you to feel bad for white people. How about I tell you, like, how fucking shitty animals are? Uh, this is my, yeah. It's a good route to go, Travis. Good job. Uh, no, uh, honestly though, it's, it's getting a little ridiculous. Like, all I'm saying is this, like, if actually, I, I think it's for women, I'd be more, if I was a woman, I'd be more upset. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, like you look at like Ray Rice, Chris Brown, these guys beat women, right? No jail time. Michael Vick <laughs> runs a fucking dog fighting ring. He says like, what, over two years in jail? <laughs> I'd be a little upset. I don't know. I'm just saying. Um, no, but girls are always the worst too with the shit too. Like my ex-girlfriend, we used to like, we used to watch like Comedy Central. A commercial would come on and it'd be like, for four cents a day, you can feed this starving child. And you know, like she just get annoyed. She's like, oh god, I'm trying to fucking watch TV here. I gotta see this shit. And then like the next one would come on and be like, in the eyes of the angels, it's a fucking dog like shivering in the cage. And she was like, oh my god, like she couldn't even fucking watch it. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? This is a fucking child here. And like, I, people like act like it's their children, you know? It's like, first of all, they like people who have dogs and act like they're their kids, it's the worst. They post pictures like, first of all, we know you don't love it as much as a kid, okay? First of all, it's adopted. So you obviously automatically don't love it as much as your own fucking blood. <laughs> 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 you know, I don't want to run up in. Uh, that's it for me, guys. I don't want to run long on time. Hey, Travis Thielen, thank you so much for being here. Hooray! All right. It looks like we have time. We're going to be able to get through everybody. It's exciting. Thanks for taking flyers. That's absolutely great. Hey, your next comedian, he brings me peanuts all the time. Peanuts with a T. <laughs> Every week he brings me the peanuts. <laughs> it's very funny. They're delicious though and I thank him for it. Clap your hands wildly.
Welcome to the Weekly Review. This is Roman. This is a pre-recorded episode. Today is Wednesday, September 21st, and this will most likely be played on Friday, September 23rd. So just heard a song called Pigs Will Pay. That says it all. And uh, for this week's episode, I am playing two clips. Uh, One is from 1966 of Stokely Carmichael speaking at UC Berkeley. So it's 50 years ago, and you can see... I don't even need to give it any commentary, uh, just listen to it. And then after that, there's a speech from Angela Davis from UC Davis uh, in 2008. So listen in, and we'll be back uh, next week. Thank you very much. It's a privilege and an honor to be in the white intellectual ghetto of the West. We wanted to do a couple of things before we started. The first is that based on the fact that SNCC, uh, through the articulation of its program by its chairman, has been able to win elections in Georgia, Alabama, Maryland, and by our appearance here, will win an election in California, 1968, I'm going to run for President of the United States. Uh, I just can't make it because I wasn't born in the United States. That's the only thing holding me back. We wanted to say that this is a student conference, as it should be, held on a campus, and that We're not ever to be caught up in the intellectual masturbation of the question of black power. That's a function of people who are advertisers that call themselves reporters. Oh, for my members and friends of the press, my self-appointed white critics. I was reading uh, Mr. Bernard Shaw two days ago and I came across a very important quote which I think is most apropos for you. He says, all criticism is a autobiography. Dig yourself. Okay. The philosophers Camus and Sartre raised the question whether or not a man can condemn himself. The black existentialist philosopher who was pragmatic, Franz Fanon, answered the question. He said that man could not. Camus and Sartre does not. We in SNCC tend to agree with Camus and Sartre that a man cannot condemn himself. Were he to condemn himself, he would then have to inflict punishment upon himself. 
An example would be the Nazis. Any prisoner, any of the Nazi prisoners, who admitted after he was caught and incarcerate, incarcerated that uh, he committed crimes, that he killed all the many people that he killed, he committed suicide. The only ones who were able to stay alive were the ones who never admitted that they committed the crimes against people. That is, the ones who rationalized that Jews were not human beings and deserved to be killed or that they were only following orders. On a more immediate scene, the officials and the population of the white population in uh, Neshoba County, Mississippi, that's uh, where Philadelphia was, could not, could not condemn Rainey, his deputies, and the other 14 men that killed three human beings. They could not because they elected Mr. Rainey to do precisely what he did and that for them to condemn him will be for them to condemn themselves. In a much larger view, Snick says that white America cannot condemn herself and since we are liberal, we have done it. You stand condemned. Now, a number of things then arises from that answer of how do you condemn yourselves. Seems to me that the institutions that function in this country are clearly racist and that they're built upon racism. And the question then is how can black people inside of this country move? And then how can white people who say they're not a part of those institutions begin to move? And how then do we begin to clear away the obstacles that we have in this society that make us live like human beings? How can we begin to build institutions that will allow people to relate with each other as human beings? This country has never done that, especially around the country of white and black. Now, several people have been upset because we said that integration was irrelevant when initiated by blacks and that in fact it was a subterfuge, an insidious subterfuge for the maintenance of white supremacy. Now, we maintain that in the past six years or so, this country has been feeding us a thalatomite drug of integration and that some Negroes have been walking down a dream street talking about sitting next to white people and that that does not begin to solve the problem. That when we went to Mississippi, we did not go to sit next to Ross Barnett. We did not go to sit next to Jim Clark. We went to get them out of our way and that people ought to understand that. That we were never fighting for the right to integrate, we were fighting against white supremacy. Now then, in order to understand white supremacy, we must dismiss the fallacious notion that white people can give anybody their freedom. No man can give anybody his freedom. A man is born free. You may enslave a man after he is born free. And that is in fact what this country does. It enslaves black people after they're born. So that the only act that white people can do is to stop denying black people their freedom. That is, they must stop denying freedom. They never give it to anyone. Now we want to take that to its logical extension so that we could understand then what its relevancy would be in terms of new civil rights bills.
I maintain that every civil rights bill in this country was passed for white people, not for black people. For example, I am black. I know that. I also know that while I am black, I am a human being. And therefore, I have the right to go into any public place. White people didn't know that. Every time I tried to go into a place, they stopped me. So some boys had to write a bill to tell that white man he's a human being. Don't stop him. That bill was for that white man, not for me. I knew it all the time. I knew it all the time. I knew that I could vote and that that wasn't a privilege, it was my right. Every time I tried, I was shot, killed, or jailed, beaten, or economically deprived. So somebody had to write a bill for white people to tell them, when a black man comes to vote, don't bother him. That bill again was for white people, not for black people. So that when you talk about open occupancy, I know I can live any place I want to live. It is white people across this country who are incapable of allowing me to live where I want to live. You need a civil rights bill, not me. I know I can live where I want to live. So that the failure to pass a civil rights bill isn't because of black power, isn't because of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, is not because of the rebellions that are occurring in the major cities. It is incapability of whites to deal with their own problems inside their own communities. That is the problem of the failure of the civil rights bill. And so in a larger sense, we must then ask, how is it that black people move and what do we do? But the question in a greater sense is how can white people who are the majority and who are responsible for making democracy work, make it work? They have miserably failed to this point. They have never made democracy work, be it inside the United States, Vietnam, South Africa, the Philippines, South America, Puerto Rico, wherever America has been. She has not been able to make democracy work. So that in a larger sense, we not only condemn the country for what is done internally, but we must condemn it for what it does externally. We see this country trying to rule the world, and someone must stand up and start articulating that this country is not God and cannot rule the world. Now then, before we move on, we ought to develop the white supremacy attitudes that we're either conscious or subconscious of, and how they run rampant through the society today. For example, the missionaries were sent to Africa. They went with the attitude that blacks were automatically inferior. As a matter of fact, the first act the missionaries did, you know, when they get to Africa was to make us cover up our bodies because they said it got them excited. We couldn't go bare-breasted anymore because they got excited. 
Now, when the missionaries came to civilize us because we were uncivilized, educate us because we were uneducated, and give us some, some literate studies because we were illiterate, they charged a price. The missionaries came with the Bible, and we had the land. When they left, they had the land, and we still have the Bible. And that has been the rationalization for Western civilization as it moves across the world and stealing and plundering and raping everybody in its path. Their one rationalization is that the rest of the world is uncivilized and they are in fact civilized and they are uncivilized. And that runs on today, you see, because what we have today is that we have what we call um, modern-day Peace Corps uh, missionaries, and they come into our ghettos, and they head start uh, upward lift, bootstrap, and upward bound us into white society. Because they don't want to face the real problem, which is a man is poor for one reason and one reason only, because he does not have money, period. If you want to get rid of poverty, you give people money, period. And you ought not to tell me about people who don't work and you can't give people money without working, because if that were true, you'd have to start stopping Rockefeller, Bobby Kennedy, Lyndon Bain Johnson, Lady Bird Johnson, the whole of Standard Oil, the Gulf Club, all of them. Including probably a large number of the Board of Trustees of this university. So the question then clearly is not whether or not one can work, it's who has power. Who has power to make his or her acts legitimate. That is all. And that this country, that power is invested in the hands of white people, and they make their acts legitimate. It is now therefore for black people to make our acts legitimate. Now we are engaged in a psychological struggle in this country, and that is whether or not black people will have the right to use the words they want to use without white people giving their sanction to it. And that we maintain whether they like it or not, we're going to use the word black power and let them address themselves to that. But that we are not going to wait for white people to sanction black power. We're tired waiting. Every time black people move in this country, they're forced to defend their position before they move. It's time that the people who are supposed to be defending their position do that. That's white people. They ought to start defending themselves as to why they have oppressed and exploited us. Now, it is clear that when this country started to move in terms of slavery, the reason for a man being picked as a slave was one reason, because of the color of his skin. If one was black, one was automatically inferior, inhuman, and therefore fit for slavery. So that the question of whether or not we are individually suppressed is nonsensical and it's a downright lie. We are oppressed as a group because we are black. Not because we're lazy, not because we're apathetic, not because we're stupid, not because we smell, not because we eat watermelon and have good rhythm. Right? We are oppressed because we are black. And in order to get out of that oppression, one must wield the group power that one has, not the individual power which this country then sets the criteria under which a man may come into it. That is what is called in this country as integration. 
You do what I tell you to do and then we'll let you sit at the table with us. And that we are saying that we have to be opposed to that. We must now set a criteria and that if there's going to be any integration, it's going to be a two-way thing. If you believe in integration, you can come live in what? You can send your children to the ghetto schools. Let's talk about that. If you believe in integration, then we're going to start adopting us some white people to live in our neighborhood. So it is clear that the question is not one of integration or segregation. Integration is a man's ability to want to move in there by himself. If someone wants to live in a white neighborhood and he is black, that is his choice. It should be his right. It is not because white people will not allow him. So vice versa, if a black man wants to live in the slums, that should be his right. Black people will let him. That is the difference. And it's a difference on which this country makes a number of logical mistakes when they begin to try to criticize the program articulated by SNCC. Now we maintain that we cannot be afford to be concerned about 6% of the children in this country, black children, who you allow to come into white schools. We have 94% who still live in shacks. We are going to be concerned about those 94%. You ought to be concerned about them too. The question is, are we willing to be concerned about those 94%? Are we willing to be concerned about the black people who will never get to Berkeley, who will never get to Harvard, and cannot get an education, so you'll never get a chance to rub shoulders with them and say, well, he's almost as good as we are, he's not like the others. The question is, how can white society begin to move to see black people as human beings? I am black, therefore I am. Not that I am black and I must go to college to prove myself. I am black, therefore I am. And don't deprive me of anything and say to me that you must go to college before you gain access to X, Y, and Z. It is only a rationalization for one's oppression. The, the political parties in this country do not meet the needs of people on a day-to-day -day basis. The question is how can we build new political institutions that will become the political expressions of people on a day-to-day -day basis. The question is how can you build political institutions that will begin to meet the needs of Oakland, California. And the needs of Oakland, California is not 1,000 policemen with submachine guns. They don't need that. They need that least of all. The question is how can we build institutions where those people can begin to function on a day-to-day -day basis, where they can get decent jobs, where they can get decent houses, and where they can begin to participate in the policy and major decisions that affect their lives. That's what they need, not Gestapo troops, because this is not 1942, and if you play like Nazis, we playing back with you this time around. Get hip to that. The question then is how can white people move to start making the major institutions that they have in this country function the way it is supposed to function? That is the real question. And can white people move inside their own community and start tearing down racism where in fact it does exist? Where it exists. It is you who live in Cicero and stop us from living there. It is white people who stop us from moving into Grenada. It is white people who make sure that we live in the ghettos of this country. It is white institutions that do that. They must change. 
in order, in order for America to really live on a basic principle of human relationships, a new society must be born. Racism must die and the economic exploitation of this country of non-white people around the world must also die. Must also die. Now there are several programs that we have in the South among some poor white communities. We're trying to organize poor whites on a base where they can begin to move around the question of economic exploitation and political disfranchisement. We know we've heard the theory several times, but few people are willing to go into there. The question is, can the white activists not try to be a Pepsi generation who comes alive in a black community, but can he be a man who's willing to move into the white community and start organizing where the organization is needed? Can he do that? The question is, can the white society or the white activists disassociate themselves with two clowns who waste time parrying with each other rather than talking about the problems that are facing people in this state? Can you disassociate yourself with those clowns and start to build new institutions that will eliminate all idiots like them? And the question is, if we are going to do that, when and where do we start and how do we start? We maintain that we must start doing that inside the white community. Our own personal position politically is that we don't think the Democratic Party represents the needs of black people. We know it don't. And that if, in fact, white people really believe that, the question is if they're going to move inside that structure, how are they going to organize around a concept of whiteness based on true brotherhood and based on stopping exploitation, economic exploitation, so that there will be a coalition base for black people to hook up with. You cannot form a coalition based on national sentiment. That is not a coalition. If you need a coalition to readdress itself to real changes in this country, white people must start building those institutions inside the white community. And that is the real question, I think, facing the white activists today. Can they, in fact, begin to move into and tear down the institutions which have put us all in a trick bag that we've been into for the last hundred years? I don't think that we should follow what many people say that we should fight to be leaders of tomorrow. Frederick Douglass said that the youth should fight to be leaders today. And God knows we need to be leaders today because the men who run this country are sick. Are sick. So that can we on a larger sense begin now today to start building those institutions and to fight to articulate our position, to fight to be able to control our universities, we need to be able to do that, and to fight to control the basic institutions which perpetuate racism by destroying them and building new ones. That's the real question that faces us today. And it is a dilemma because most of us do not know how to work and that the excuse that most white activists find is to run into the black community. Now, we've maintained that we cannot have 
white people working in the black community, and we've made it on a psychological ground. The fact is that all black people often question whether or not they are equal to whites, because every time they start to do something, white people are around showing them how to do it. If we are going to eliminate that for the generation that comes after us, then black people must be seen in positions of power doing and articulating for themselves. For themselves. That is not to say that one is a reverse racist. It is to say that one is moving in a healthy ground. It is to say what the philosopher Sartre says. One is becoming an anti-racist racist. And this country can't understand that. Maybe it's because it's all caught up in racism. But I think what you have in SNCC is an anti-racist racism. We are against racists. Now, if everybody who's white see themselves as a racist, and then see us against them. They're speaking from their own guilt position, not ours. Now then the question is, how can we move to begin to change what's going on in this country? I maintain, as we have in SNCC, that the war in Vietnam is an illegal and immoral war. And the question is, what can we do to stop that war? What can we do to stop the people who, in the name of our country, are killing babies, women, and children? What can we do to stop that? And I maintain that we do not have the power in our hands to change that institution, to begin to recreate it so that they learn to leave the Vietnamese people alone, and that the only power we have is the power to say, hell no to the draft. We have to say, We have to say to ourselves that there is a higher law than the law of a racist named McNamara. There is a higher law than the law of a fool named Russ. And there's a higher law, the law of a buffoon named Johnson. It's the law of each of us. The law of each of us. of us saying that we will not allow them to make us hired killers. We will stand packed. We will not kill anybody that they say kill. And if we decide to kill, we're going to decide who we're going to kill. Yeah. And this country will only be able to stop the war in Vietnam when the young men who are made to fight it begin to say, hell no, we ain't going. Now then, as a failure, 
because the peace movement has been unable to get off the college campuses where everybody has a 2S and not going to get drafted anyway. And the question is, how can you move out of that into the white ghettos of this country and begin to articulate a position for those white students who do not want to go? We cannot do that. It is something uh, sometimes ironic that many of the peace groups have beginning to call us violent and say they can no longer support us, and we are in fact the most militant organization, peace or civil rights or human rights, against the war in Vietnam in this country today. There isn't one organization that has begun to meet our stance on the war in Vietnam. Because we not only say we are against the war in Vietnam, we are against the draft. We are against the draft. No man has the right to take a man for two years and train him to be a killer. A man should decide what he wants to do with his life. So the question then is it becomes crystal clear for black people because we can easily say that anyone fighting in the war in Vietnam is nothing but a black mercenary and that's all he is. Anytime a black man leaves a country where he can't vote to supposedly deliver the vote for somebody else, he's a black mercenary. Anytime a, anytime a black man leaves this country, gets shot in Vietnam on foreign ground and returns home and you won't give him a burial in his own homeland, he's a black mercenary. The black mercenary. And that even if I were to believe the lies of Johnson, if I were to believe his lies that we're fighting to give democracy to the people in Vietnam, as a black man living in this country, I wouldn't fight to give this to anybody. I wouldn't give it to anybody. So that we have to use our bodies and our minds in the only way that we see fit. We must begin, like the, like the philosopher Camus, to come alive by saying no. That is the only act in which we begin to come alive. And we have to say no to many, many things in this country. The act in which we begin to come alive. And we have to say no to many, many things in this country. This country is a nation of thieves. It has stole everything it had, beginning with black people, beginning with black people. And that the question is how can we move to start changing this country from what it is, a nation of thieves. And this country cannot justify any longer its existence. We have become the policemen of the world. The Marines are at disposal to always bring democracy. And if the Vietnamese don't want democracy, well, damn it, we'll just wipe them the hell out because they don't deserve to live if they won't have our way of life. There is then, in the largest sense, what do you do on your university campus? Do you raise questions about the hundred black students who were kicked off campus a couple of weeks ago? Eight hundred? Eight hundred? And how does that question begin to move? Do you begin to relate people outside of the ivory tower on a university wall? Do you think you're capable of building those human relationships as the country now stands? You're fooling yourself. It is impossible 
for white and black people to talk about building a relationship based on humanity when the country is the way it is, when the institutions are clearly against us. We've taken all the myths of this country and we found them to be nothing but downright lies. This country told us that if we worked hard, we would succeed. And if that were true, we would own this country lock, stock, and barrel. Lock, stock, and barrel. Lock, stock, and barrel. It is we who have picked the cotton for nothing. It is we who are the maids in the kitchens of liberal white people. It is we who are the janitors, the porters, the elevator men, the we who sweep up your college floors. Yes, it is we who are the hardest workers and the lowest paid, and the lowest paid. And that it is nonsensical for people to start talking about human relationships until they're willing to build new institutions. Black people are economically insecure. White liberals are economically secure. Can you begin to build an economic coalition? Are the liberals willing to share their salaries with the economically insecure black people they so much love? Then if you're not, are you willing to start building new institutions that will provide economic security for black people? That's the question we want to deal with. That's the question we want to deal with. We have to seriously examine the histories that we have been told. But we have something more to do than that. American students are perhaps the most politically unsophisticated students in the world. In the world. In the world. Across every country in this world, while we were growing up, students were leaving, leading the major revolutions of their countries. We have not been able to do that. They have been politically aware of their existence. In South America, our neighbors down below the border have one every 24 hours just to remind us that they're politically aware. And that we have been unable to grasp it because we've always moved in a field of morality and love while people have been politically jiving with our lives. And the question is, how do we now move politically and stop trying to move morally? You can't move morally against a man like Brown and Regan. You've got to move politically to cut them out of business. You've got to move politically. You can't move morally against Lyndon Bain Johnson because he is that immoral man. He doesn't know what it's all about. So you've got to move politically. You've got to move politically. And that we have to begin to develop a political sophistication, which is not to be a parrot. The two-party system is the best party in the world. Eh? There is a difference between being a parrot and being politically sophisticated. We have to raise questions about whether or not we do need new types of political institutions in this country, and we instinct maintain that we need them now. We need new political institutions in this country. Anytime, anytime Lyndon Bain Johnson can head a party which has in it Bobby Kennedy, Wayne Morse, Eastland, Wallace, and all those other supposed to be liberal cats, there's something wrong with that party. They're moving politically, not morally. And that if that party refuses to see black people from Mississippi 
and goes ahead and sees racists like Eastland and his clique, it is clear to me that they're moving politically and that one cannot begin to talk morality to people like that. We must begin to think politically and see if we can have the power to impose and keep the moral values that we hold high. We must question the values of this society. And I maintain that black people are the best people to do that because we have been excluded from that society. And the question is we ought to think whether or not we want to become a part of that society. That's what we want to do. And that that is precisely what it seems to me that the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee is doing. We are raising questions about this country. I do not want to be a part of the American pie. The American pie means raping South Africa, beating Vietnam, beating South America, raping the Philippines, raping every country you've been in. I don't want any of your blood money. I don't want it. Don't want to be part of that system. And the question is how do we raise those questions? How do we raise them as activists? How do we begin to raise them? We have grown up and we are the generation that has found this country to be a world power, that has found this country to be the wealthiest country in the world. We must question how she got her wealth. That's what we're questioning and whether or not we want this country to continue being the wealthiest country in the world at the price of raping every everybody else across the world. That's what we must begin to question. And that because black people are saying we do not now want to become a part of you, we are called reverse racist. Ain't that a guess? <laughs> now then, we want to touch on nonviolence because we see that again as the failure of white society to make nonviolence work. I was always surprised that Quakers who came to Alabama and counseled me to be nonviolent but didn't have the guts to start talking to James Clark to be nonviolent. That is where nonviolence needs to be preached to Jim Clark, not to black people. They have already been nonviolent too many years. The question is, can white people conduct their nonviolent schools in Cicero, where they belong to be conducted? Not among black people in Mississippi. Can they conduct it among the white people in Grenada? Six foot two men who kick little black children. Can you conduct nonviolent schools there? That is the question that we must raise. Not that you conduct nonviolence among black people. Can you name me one black man today who's killed anybody white and is still alive? Even after rebellion, when some black brothers throw some bricks and bottles, 10,000 of them have to pay the crime. Because when the white policeman comes in, anybody who's black is arrested because we all look alike. <laughs> so that we have to raise those questions. We, the youth of this country, must begin to raise those questions. And we must begin to move to build new institutions that's going to speak to the needs of people who need it. We are going to have to speak to change the foreign policy of this country. One of the problems with the peace movement is that it's just too caught up in Vietnam. 
And that if we pulled out the troops from Vietnam this week, next week you'd have to get another peace movement for Santa Domingo. And the question is how do you begin to articulate needs to change the foreign policy of this country? A policy that is decided upon rape, a policy in which the decisions are made upon getting economic wealth at any price. At any price. Now we articulate that we therefore have to hook up with black people around the world. And that hookup is not only psychological, but becomes very real. If South America today were to rebel and black people were to shoot the hell out of all the white people there, as they should, as they should, then Standard Oil would crumble tomorrow. If South Africa were to go today, Chase Manhattan Bank would crumble tomorrow. If Zimbabwe, which is called Rhodesia by white people, were to go tomorrow, General Electric would cave in on the East Coast. The question is how do we stop those institutions that are so willing to fight against communist aggression but closes their eyes to racist oppression? That is the question that you raise. Can this country do that? Now many people talk about pulling out of Vietnam. What will happen? If we pull out of Vietnam, there will be one less aggressor in there. We won't be there. We won't be there. And so the question is, how do we articulate those positions? And we cannot begin to articulate them from the same assumptions that the people in the country speak, because they speak from different assumptions than I assume what the youth in this country are talking about. That we're not talking about a policy or aid or sending Peace Corps people in to teach people how to read and write and build houses while we steal their raw materials from them. Is that what we're talking about? Because that's all we do. Well, underdeveloped countries need uh, information on how to become industrialized so they can keep their raw materials where they have it, produce them, and sell it to this country for the price it's supposed to pay. Not that we produce it and sell it back to them for a profit and keep sending our modern-day missionaries in, calling them the sons of Kennedy. And that if the youth are going to participate in that program, how do you raise those questions where you begin to control that Peace Corps program? How do you begin to raise them? How do we raise the questions of poverty? The assumption for this country is that if someone is poor, they are poor because of their own individual blight. Oh, they weren't born on the right side of town. They had too many children. Uh, they went in the army too early. Their father was a drunk. Uh, they didn't care about school. Uh, they made a mistake. That's a lot of nonsense. Poverty is well calculated in this country. It is well calculated. And the reason why the poverty program won't work is because the calculators of poverty are administering it. That's why it won't work. So how can we, as a youth in the country, move to start tearing those things down? We must move into the white community. We are in the black community. We have developed a movement in the black community. The challenge is that the white activist has failed miserably to develop the movement inside of his community. And the question is, can we find white people who are going to have the courage to go into white communities and start organizing them? Can we find them? Are they here? And are they willing to do that? Those are the questions that we must raise for the white activists. And we're never going to get caught up in questions about power. This country knows what power is, knows it very well. And it knows what black power is. 
because it's deprived black people of it for 400 years. So it knows what black power is. But the question of why do black people, why do white people in this country associate black power with violence? And the question is because of their own inability to deal with blackness. If we had said Negro power, nobody would get scared. Everybody would support it. Uh, if we said power for colored people, everybody would be for that. But it is the word black. It is the word black that bothers people in this country. And that's their problem, not mine. Their problem. Their problem. Now, there's one more than they lie that we want to attack and then move on very quickly. And that is the lie that says anything all black is bad. Now, you're all college university crowd. You've taken your basic logic course. You know about a major premise, a minor premise. So people have been telling me anything all black is bad. Let's make that our major premise. Major premise. Anything all black is bad. Minor premise or particular premise. I am all black. Therefore. I'm never going to be putting that trick back. I am all black and I'm all good. <laughs> Anything all black is not necessarily bad. Anything all black is only bad when you use force to keep whites out. Now that's what white people have done in this country and they're projecting their same fears and guilt on us and we won't have it. We won't have it. Let them handle their own fears and their own guilt. Let them find their own psychologists. We refuse to be the therapy for white society any longer. We have gone mad trying to do it. We have gone stop raising mad trying to do it. I look at Dr. King on television every single day, and I say to myself, now there is a man who is desperately needed in this country. There is a man full of love. There is a man full of mercy. There is a man full of compassion. But every time I see Lyndon on television, I said, Martin, baby, you've got a long way to go. So that the question stands as to what we are willing to do, how we are willing to say no, to withdraw from that system, and begin within our community to start to function and to build new institutions that will speak to our needs. In Lowndes County, we developed something called the Lowndes County Freedom Organization. It is a political party. The Alabama law says that if you have a party, you must have an emblem. We chose for the emblem a black panther, a beautiful black animal, which symbolizes the strength and dignity of black people. An animal that never strikes back until he's back so far into the war, he's got nothing to do but spring out. Yeah. And when he springs, he does not stop. Now, there is a party in Alabama called the Alabama Democratic Party. It is all white. It has as its emblem a white rooster and the words white supremacy for the right. Now, the gentlemen of the press, because they're advertisers and because most of them are white and because they're produced by that white institution, never calls the Lowndes County Freedom Organization by its name but rather they call it the Black Panther Party. Our question is, why don't they call the Alabama Democratic Party the White Cock Party? It's <laughs> <laughs>
it is clear to me that that just points out America's problem with sex and color. Not our problem. Not our problem. And it is not white America is going to deal with those problems of sex and color. If we were to be real and to be honest, we would have to admit, we would have to admit that most people in this country see things black and white. We have to do that. All of us do. We live in a country that's geared that way. White people would have to admit that they are afraid to go into a black ghetto at night. They are afraid. That's a fact. They're afraid because they'd be beat up, lynched, looted, cut up, etc., etc. That happens to black people inside the ghetto every day, incidentally. And white people are afraid of that. So you get a man to do it for you, a policeman. And now you figure his mentality where he's afraid of black people. The first time a black man jumps, that white man gonna shoot him. He's gonna shoot him. So police brutality is going to exist on that level because of the incapability of that white man to see black people come together and to live in the conditions. This country is too hypocritical and that we cannot adjust ourselves to its hypocrisy. The only time I hear people talk about nonviolence is when black people move to defend themselves against white people. Black people cut themselves every night in the ghetto. Don't anybody talk about nonviolence. Lyndon Bain Johnson is busy bombing the hell out of Vietnam. Don't nobody talk about nonviolence. White people beat up black people every day. Don't nobody talk about nonviolence. But as soon as black people start to move, the double standard comes into being. You can't defend yourself. That's what you're saying. Because you show me a man who, who would advocate aggressive violence that would be able to live in this country. Show him to me. The double standards again come into itself. Isn't it ludicrous and hypocritical for the political chameleon who calls himself a vice president in this country? So, to stand up before this country and say looting never got anybody anywhere? Isn't it hypocritical for Lyndon to talk about looting, that you can't accomplish anything by looting and you must accomplish it by the legal ways? What does he know about legality? Ask Ho Chi Minh, he'll tell you. So that in conclusion, we want to say that number one, it is clear to me that we have to wage a psychological battle on the right for black people to define their own terms, define themselves as they see fit, and organize themselves as they see it. Now the question is how is the white community going to begin to allow for that organizing? Because once they start to do that, they will also allow for the organizing that they want to do inside their community. It doesn't make a difference because we're going to organize our way anyway. We're going to do it. The question is how we're going to facilitate those matters, whether or not it's going to be done with a uh, thousand uh, policemen with submachine guns or whether or not it's going to be done in a context where it is allowed to be done by white people warding off those policemen. That is the question. And the question is how are white people who call themselves activists ready to start, move into the white communities on two counts, on building new political institutions to destroy the old ones that we have and to move around a concept of white youth refusing to go into the army so that we can start then to, be, to build a new world. It is ironic to talk about civilization in this country. This country is uncivilized. It needs to be civilized. 
It needs to be civilized. And that we must begin to raise those questions of civilization, what it is, and who do it. And so we must urge you to fight now to be the leaders of today, not tomorrow. We've got to be the leaders of today. This country, this country is a nation of thieves. It stands on the brink of becoming a nation of murderers. We must stop it. We must stop it. We must stop it. We must stop it. And then, therefore, on a larger center is the question of black people. We are on the move for our liberation. We have been tired of trying to prove things to white people. We are tired of trying to explain to white people that we're not going to hurt them. We are concerned with getting the things we want, the things that we have to have to be able to function. The question is, can white people allow for that in this country? The question is, will white people overcome their racism and allow for that to happen in this country? If that does not happen, brothers and sisters, we have no choice but to say very clearly, move over or we gonna move on over you. Thank you.
If I had time, I would talk at length about how my own world has vastly transformed since I was a child growing up in what was at that time the most segregated city in the South, Birmingham, Alabama. So maybe I'll give you a, an abbreviated version. Or perhaps I'll tell you that whenever I return home, I am struck by the fact that I still remain pretty much a stranger to the geography of the city. Because when I lived there, black people were confined by the prevalent apartheid system to just a very few neighborhoods. And as a matter of fact, I remember people always talking about over the mountain. Uh, is, if any, is, it, is there anybody from Birmingham in the house? Okay, so you know what I mean, right? <laughs> but the only black people who ever went over the mountain were domestic workers. And so, things have changed. When I go shopping, if I'm in Birmingham, I am always struck by the invasive memories of the double restrooms and the double water fountains with you know, white and colored marking uh, the ones that were deemed appropriate, racially appropriate. And so that segregation is no longer with us. I'm not saying that racism has been abolished. I'm saying that that legal form of segregation uh, has been disestablished. And it wasn't disestablished because presidents or legislators or judges one day had epiphanies about the injustices and immoralities of racial segregation. It was disestablished because ordinary people, ordinary people became collectively aware of themselves as potential agents of social change, as holding within their collective hands the power to create a new world. And it was disestablished, segregation was disestablished because ordinary people learned how to adopt a critical stance in the way they perceived their relationship to reality. Social realities that might have appeared impenetrable, inalterable, unchangeable came to be viewed as malleable and transformable. And people learned how to imagine what it might mean to live in a world that was not so exclusively governed by the principle of white supremacy. And this collective consciousness emerged within the context of social struggles and was transmitted in many ways. If I were going to tell my own personal story, I would probably mention um, one of my very earliest memories. Uh, uh, what my mother used to tell me when I would um, cry, when I learned that I couldn't go here or there, that I couldn't go to the amusement park because black people were barred from the amusement park. It was whites only. 
or couldn't go through this door or 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 couldn't go into this library and had to go into the the, the black library but i learned how to how not to cry when my mother explained to me, and perhaps I was about three years old then, I don't know, maybe three or four. My mother explained racism and segregation to me. And what she said, and I'll never forget this, was that she said, this is not the way things are supposed to be. This might be the way they are now, but they are not supposed to be this way. And she said, they will not always be this way. And I can remember as a child her telling me that one day I would probably look back and realize how um, enormously things had changed. Now I relate this bit of personal history because it helps me to understand how important it is to transmit certain habits of perception, certain habits of imagination. Just as it was once possible and important for people to imagine a world without slavery, a world beyond slavery, just as it was important for me personally to learn how, as a child, to imagine a world without racial segregation, and then later to imagine a world in which women were not assumed to be inferior to men, it is now important to imagine a world without xenophobia and the fenced-in borders that are designed to make us think about the people of the South as the enemy. It is important now to imagine a world in which binary conceptions of gender no longer govern modes of segregation and association, and one in which violence is eradicated from state practices as well as from our intimate lives, regardless of how we position our sexuality. It's really important to um, work with your imagination, to use your imagination, to think beyond the moment. But it's not enough simply to imagine a different future. We can walk around with these ideal words in our heads while everything crumbles around us. And so I would say that critical habits involve collective intervention as well. If we take the critical impulse seriously, it involves a dual commitment. I would say, first of all, a commitment to use knowledge in a transformative way. And I assume that many of you here are students, am I right? Okay, okay, well, let's, let's see, where are the students in the house? Okay. Okay, and where are the 
Well, I, I suppose I could talk about faculty and staff, but I might also talk about community people. Okay, so where are you from? Sacramento. You know, I never knew that UC Davis was so diverse. And when I walked out and saw the audience, I thought, wow, UC Davis is ahead of all the other campuses in the UC system. <laughs> but I actually know what's going on. <laughs> And I know that some of you are, are planning a major demonstration soon around the issue of the underrepresentation of students of color in the University of California. Okay. And of course, we assume that um, the knowledge that matters comes from places like this, uh, where people who are here, both faculty and, and students, engage in the full-time uh, pursuit of knowledge, right? We're supposed to be the intelligentsia, right? But I would like us to think about, a no about knowledge in a much broader way. This is one site for the production of knowledge, but knowledge gets produced in other sites as well. And especially for students who, who come from backgrounds where they know what uh, poverty means, what racism means, it's, it's, it's extremely important not to discount the learning that happens in our communities, the learning that happens on the job, the learning that happens in the course of organizing trade unions. So when I say knowledge, I'm not talking about the specialized knowledge. I'm not only talking about that specialized knowledge. I'm talking about knowledge in a broader sense. And so as I was saying, the critical impulse which uh, I want to suggest we need to develop involves a commitment to use knowledge in a transformative way. To use knowledge as a um, way of helping us to remake the world, to remake the world so that it is better for all of its inhabitants. And I'm not only talking about human beings. This critical impulse means that we have to absolutely refuse to attribute any kind of permanency to that which is, simply because it is. There's another aspect of what we might call a critical posture towards the world. And in my opinion, this is where feminism comes in. And I'll talk about feminism uh, a little later, but I want us to think about feminism much more broadly than we usually do. Uh, I want to think about feminism as encouraging us to adopt critical habits toward the tools we use. 
And I'm talking about, when I say tools, I'm talking about the conceptual tools. That means our concepts, our vocabularies. And not only in the academy, but also among, in organizing practices. Uh, because it's, you know, it, it occurs to me that, uh, you know, we have all of these different languages and we assume that uh, some are more important than other. We have all of these different vocabularies and we don't all, we don't share the meanings of these uh, words. Uh, so, you know, I can say struggle and I know that uh, there are some people who will understand exactly what I mean when I say struggle. There are other people struggle. You know, what is that? Uh, now, before I move on to talk about some of the aspects of our contemporary world that desperately need changing, I want to make two important points. And one has to do with the tendency to erase the contributions of those who have perhaps done the most to bring about progressive change. And the second point has to do with the difference between the change we want, the change we struggle for on the one hand, and the change we actually achieve, the changing change that we actually achieve. Now, first of all, we're, we're gathered here under the auspices of the Women's Resources and Research Center. Let's give them a hand. And because they have brought us together in this, um, in this temporary community uh, that we constitute, and there are quite a few people here, I'm totally impressed. I'm impressed with the, the, the Women's Resource Center. I'm impressed with UC Davis. I'm impressed with the Sacramento community. Uh, we should figure out later on before we break up how to use this. You know, so I, I think what I'm going to do at the end is ask people who are organizationally affiliated uh, and who are involved in, 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 in some of the, the campaigns for radical change, whether it be abolition of the prison system, you know, whether it be against violence against women, to come up to the front and, you know, we'll, we'll be sort of like uh, church, right, you know? If you feel so inspired to offer, you don't have to offer any money, you know, but you can offer uh, your bodies and your minds and your time. So remind me, we have to do that before we break up this evening. Um, so as I was saying, often those who contribute most powerfully to movements for radical social change are erased in the histories that are transmitted from generation to generation. And I like to use the civil rights movement uh, as an example. Uh, uh, because it's historical for me, even I, I, I was quite uh, I, I was quite young and I so I have an experience of it, but I have to think about it as uh, um, history as well. 
and also because everybody in this country knows who Reverend Martin Luther King is, right? Everybody knows. Can you think of any person in the United States of America who has not heard the name Martin Luther King? I mean, even in places like Arizona, where, you know, <laughs> you know they really resisted the birthday, uh, 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 the observance of the birthday. And I think this is, I think this is great. This is a change that happened, but it may not have been entirely the change that we wanted because we don't really, we, we, we aren't really uh, informed about the conditions under which that particular leadership developed. And we assume that because there was someone called Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He appeared on the scene in Montgomery. He was the Messiah. And, and, and this whole movement developed. I mean, that's what I call the Messiah complex in terms of uh, our notions of leadership, right? Um, and it seems to me that the greatness of Dr. King resided precisely in his capacity to learn his leadership abilities, to acquire his leadership abilities from the people who had organized that movement, to listen to them. And as a matter of fact, you know, most people don't even know that, uh, that it was a group of black women who organized the Montgomery bus boycott. You know, most people haven't heard of the name Joanne Robinson, even though she wrote a book called The Montgomery Bus Boycott and the Women Who Started It. <laughs> because that messes with the paradigm, right? You're supposed to think that it's these great heroic male leaders who are the motors of history. And how could you possibly measure up to someone like that? And what you don't realize is that the real work happened uh, long before Dr. King ever thought of associating himself with those struggles. As a matter of fact, do you know why he ended up being the spokesperson? Because all the black ministers in Montgomery had been involved in you know, all of these um, confusing debates and there were contradictions and, and you couldn't ask this one because the, you know how ministers, I mean, some of you know how ministers, right? <laughs> Those of you from Sacramento. <laughs> and so the idea was to choose this young man who had just arrived in town and who hadn't had an opportunity to get embroiled in all of the debates and who really didn't know very much anyway. Uh, which isn't to say young people don't know very much. Uh, they do. They know a great deal. But he was considered to be uh, uh, the easiest choice. And so basically the women selected 
Dr. King as the spokesperson for the work that they were doing. Now this isn't the history that we, we learn, is it? I mean, we don't, we, we don't know about um, Joanne Robinson, uh, who, who taught at uh, Alabama State University and was the chair of the Alabama uh, uh, Politi Women's Political Association, uh, how she and the members of her organization were trying to start a boycott. They had planned that. And they had tried on several occasions. And then finally, when Rosa Parks got arrested, and Rosa Parks was an organizer. She wasn't a tired woman, you know? She wasn't the, 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 the individual you always see uh, uh, portrayed, especially in the visual portrayals of her, as you know, sort of the one black woman who manages to make it to the ranks of the heroic historical figures alone. Uh, she was an organizer. She was a trained organizer. And when she was arrested, Joanne Robinson, um, Got a, got a couple of her students, they stayed up all night long. Um, um, what was it called? Mimeographing. <laughs> that was before Xerox, right? <laughs> Mimeographing, and you had to like this, I think this may have even before the electrical uh, mimeograph. So you, you had to cut a stencil, and some of you who are like uh, my age know what I'm talking about. So it was hard work. They stayed up all night long making those leaflets. And that's how the bus boycott got started. And I say this because that was really unglamorous work. It's work that we would not necessarily think about as being that significant. But that was what helped to create that movement. If they hadn't stayed up all night, if they hadn't worked that mimeograph machine, if they hadn't gotten people to go out and to distribute all of those leaflets like at 6 o'clock in the morning when people, particularly when um, uh, people who were domestic servants were getting on the bus, it never would have happened. I mean, I'm not saying that the struggle for civil rights wouldn't have happened, but it wouldn't have happened in the way that it did. And it's a very different story. It's a story about people just like you. It is not a story about heroic individualism. And it's a, story about the, it's a story about the erasure of women's contributions. And so I could talk about other movements as well. I could talk about uh, uh, the Chicano movement, Latino movements, American Indian movement, the Asian American movements. And I could talk about the, the, um, the contributions that women made to those movements uh, during uh, my time in the late 60s and the 70s that um, will be lost if we don't figure out how to rectify the tendency to tell history uh, in this way that, that privileges heroic individualism. And keep in mind, I'm going to be using individualism for the rest of my talk. Uh, because uh, uh, it's dangerous. 
It's really, really dangerous. And we have somebody in Washington who assumes that that is the meaning of freedom. But, like I said, I have to wait. I'm, I'm really anxious. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, but, okay, the second point I wanted to make is that um, the victories we do win are not always the victories we fought for. But we should celebrate them nonetheless. This is the year in which the Black Panther Party celebrates its 40th anniversary. As a matter of fact, in the Bay Area this weekend, there are a whole number of events. There's a huge reunion happening. The American Studies Association is meeting in Oakland, and uh, there is a, um, um, an event marking the 40th anniversary of the Black Panther Party, which was founded right there in Oakland, California. And if some of you know the history of the Black Panther Party, you know that it came about because a few people decided they wanted to do something about rampant police violence in the city of Oakland. Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, and you know, many people are reluctant to talk about Huey Newton's contribution because of his trajectory and his um, putative involvement with drugs and the way he died. Um, but I, I'll never forget what Erica Huggins said at Huey's funeral many years ago. She said, you know, everybody has their demons. And Huey had his demons and he could not deal with them. But that does not change the fact that he helped to spark a whole new phase in the movement against racism in this country. And so when he and Bobby Seale decided that they were going to patrol the streets of Oakland, California, and they were going to take guns, that time it was legal to take guns. I mean, you could carry guns as long as you didn't conceal them. So they weren't breaking the law. And they were going to take a law book and they were going to um, monitor the Oakland police so that when the police stopped somebody, and I know racial profiling is still a major, major issue, especially right here in this area. But when, when they saw the um, police stopping people, they would simply go and stand by and say, we want to inform you of your rights. And so they would have a law book in one hand, right? And then they would have their gun in the other hand. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I don't want to romanticize guns. I really don't. I don't want to romanticize violence or representations of violence. But what I can say is that that was an amazing feat of the imagination. That was an amazing feat of the imagination. Um, because it demonstrated that, that the kinds of strategies we 
had accepted as transformative the civil rights strategies um, worked only up to a certain point and we didn't have to stop there we could go further I mean this was this was their way and, and I, I have to stop talking about this in a minute because uh, uh, I'm running out of time uh, but this was also a way of manifesting solidarity with people who were struggling in Asia in, in Vietnam for example with people who were struggling for their liberation in Africa with the people of South Africa for example I mean this is how I interpret the symbolic um, the symbolic meaning of the weapons but then I would also have to talk about the, you know, masculinist, militarist, uh, you know. I mean, and all of that's there, too. There were real problems with the way the Black Panther Party unfolded, but that's okay. Because that was that period. And besides, we did not have the vocabulary, we didn't have the concepts which allowed us to think about the, the, the masculinism that was so much at the heart of uh, that work and, at, and, and many of the liberation movements as well. Uh, but at the same time, this was, this, this, this move by Huey and Bobby and others had a powerful impact on people all over the country and all over the world. I mean, I was studying in Frankfurt, Germany. And when I s learned about what had happened in Oakland, California, I said, it's time to go home. And I'm sure many people responded in exactly the way I did. And then you had organizations developing in places like uh, Brazil, Black Panther Party of Brazil, Israel, a Black Panther Party in Israel, and many other countries all over the world. So this, this, was, this was quite amazing. Um, so they didn't stop police violence. They didn't stop racial profiling. Uh, but they achieved a lot of other changes. Um, and we could talk about the women's movement and how the women's movement formulating the overarching goal of eliminating sexism, male supremacy from our attitudes, from our institutions, and we know that racism and male dominance and homophobia are still very much of our surroundings. But the contributions of the women's movement, uh, and you know, when I say women's movement, I'm talking about a lot of different women's movements. I'm talking about the welfare rights movement. You know, I'm talking about the welfare rights movement that was uh, uh, that was comprised of poor women, um, in large part, black women, Latina women, poor white women, 
and who raised radical demands back then, you know, who called for an end, end to the welfare system long before President Clinton thought about getting rid of the well, welfare system. Clinton bears his blame as well, so, right? Uh, what they called for was a guaranteed annual income for every single person in this country. A guaranteed, either jobs, jobs, right? And if the jobs aren't available, a guaranteed annual income with no strings attached without all of those strings that were attached to ideological as well as material strings that were attached to uh, welfare payments. <laughs> now, I would really like to uh, have some conversation with you, so I, I think I better really move on. I'm just looking at my notes and I see, I wanted to say something about, um, in, in talking about historical change, I wanted to say something about the thwarted efforts of um, socialism in Eastern Europe. I mean, it's like we've completely forgotten that there were these countries that call themselves communists. The word only comes up when North Korea uh, decides that it wants to uh, uh, challenge the U.S., right? And then it's a communist country, right? Or when um, Fidel Castro uh, or the, 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 the people of Cuba stand up to George Bush and it's like communist Cuba. But what we don't hold in our historical memory is that despite whatever problems may have existed in those countries, despite the um, fact that they failed to produce social democracy, they failed to produce political democracy, uh, that they, they made amazing changes with respect to people's lives. I mean, I had a friend years ago uh, who, a young white woman uh, from this country who was on welfare, uh, and she, she made a trip to the Soviet Union. Um, and she, wa she actually wanted to get um, a university education, but couldn't because she was on welfare and had a child and all of that. So, I mean, this is an individual solution, of course. So she actually decided to uh, move to um, Moscow. And she ended up at that time, I'll never forget, she was like just so amazed. She said, you know, my rent is practically nothing. Uh, I have free childcare. I have, I can get a free college education, and when she finished her undergraduate uh, education, she decided to go on and get her PhD. And, and then she, she, she's still there. <laughs> she stayed. <laughs> but, you know, free health care. Health, the health care system is in such a crisis in this country. 
and free education. And the idea that people had was that not only should education be free, but students should actually be supported, financially supported, while they're acquiring the knowledge which they will later give back to society. So why can't we retain that in our historical memory? Victories are never permanently engraved in the social landscape. What they may mean at one point in history may be entirely different, even contrary to what they might mean at another point uh, in history. And of course, here in California, uh, we know that the whole notion of civil rights, especially for people of color and women, has been redefined in a way that contradicts its original intent. And I know some of you are interested in the underrepresentation of, uh, of students of color. I think it's important to remember that affirmative action was assumed to be a collective strategy. Um, it was designed to change the structures of right. communities that were subject to discrimination. It was not designed to be an individual solution. And so what we have now is this very individualized, I'm talking about individualism again, take note of that, this, this very individualized interpretation that pits individual white men who are members of a class that has been a bearer of historical privilege against groups and classes that have suffered historical discrimination. And we don't see that contradiction. We don't see that contradiction. But what I should say is that this does not mean that the struggle for affirmative action was a mistake, since it is now so often redefined as reverse discrimination. It means that social meanings are socially constructed and that we cannot leave it up to the state to create those meanings. And I mean the state in the broadest possible sense, right? I mean, I'm not only talking about government, but I am talking about government in Washington. And you know, I can't get started talking about... Uh, Schwarzenegger? I mean, you know, I do a lot of traveling, and, and you know, I travel in, in, in Europe and Latin America and other places, and, and, and people said, George Bush and Arnold Schwarzenegger in California? They said, that's even worse than Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Because, of course, uh, uh, Barbara mentioned that I was on the 
you know, I don't, I, I, I don't uh, uh, <laughs> talk about the fact that I was on the uh, FBI's 10 was one and was that often. <laughs> but uh, uh, Richard Nixon was president and Ronald Reagan was governor of California at that time, yeah. And Richard Nixon, uh, you know, publicly said on several occasions that I was a terrorist. So you can imagine how I think about this label, terrorist, today, right? Um, but let me get back to my notes. So, so what I was saying is that, 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 that social meanings are socially constructed and we cannot leave it up to the state to produce those meanings. And because we are always, always, always encouraged to conceptualize change only as it affects individuals, there is this dangerous individualism to which I referred earlier, not unrelated to the individual of individualism of capitalism, possessive individualism, possessive individualism, and this dangerous individualism is bound to transform the collective victories that we win. And so if we imagine these victories as community victories, and they are transformed into individual victories, then we seek out heroic examples. We seek out individuals like Condoleezza Rice, who narrates her own history from the segregation and discrimination of the pre-civil rights era or the civil rights era in the South. She's also from Birmingham, Alabama, by the way, but that's not something I want to boast about. Uh, uh. And what happens is that we forget about the structural changes that were actually intended by those struggles. A Condoleezza Rice can say, well look, look where I am. Look what I accomplished. I was a little black girl in Birmingham, Alabama, and da 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 da, and now I'm <laughs> running around the world making war. You know, I, I'm often asked by young people, don't you feel that you and your comrades, what you and your comrades did in the 60s and 70s has sort of come to naught? Um, was it in vain? And I say no, absolutely not, absolutely not. Even if the structural change that we wanted did not occur, even if relief was not brought to subjugated communities in the way we wanted, what we did manage to do was to change the terrain of struggle. We reconfigured the landscape on which we now try to increase the measure of freedom all communities enjoy. And I am um, therefore quite concerned about questions of vocabulary. I was talking about the need to think about the conceptual tools that we use. Uh, uh, 
And earlier I talked about the need to adopt critical habits, habits that require a kind of constant criticism, not only of those things that we want to change, but of the way we want to change them and of the tools we use to conceptualize that change. So I want to just choose one example, contemporary example, um, and it's that word diversity. You know, I, it, it upsets me. It really upsets me. Uh, not that uh, I don't believe that we should have diversity, but uh, the word diversity has colonized so much of what we were once able to talk with much greater specificity. All we have to do now is evoke diversity. And what does diversity mean? It means, I guess this would be a diverse audience, uh, because there are different kinds of at least, well, I don't know whether there are really different kinds of people. Uh, there's a kind of visual effect, you know? And diversity is precisely about that visual effect. It does not necessarily tell us. And I'm not an opponent of diversity. I'm an advocate of strong conceptions of diversity. And the way I summarize it is that you can have difference that truly makes a difference. And that's the kind of diversity I want, difference that is going to make a difference. But you can also have difference that doesn't make a difference. Difference that allows the machine to keep functioning in the same old way. And as a matter of fact, sometimes even more efficiently and effectively. I mean, George Bush is so proud of the fact that his Secretary of State is a black woman. And I would tell some stories about that, but... Uh, <laughs> if we embrace weak notions of diversity, it is a concept that provides, it, that promotes, it seems to me, a hidden individualization of problems and solutions that ought to be collective. It is a concept that can, unless we redefine it in its strongest version that can leave structures of inequality and injustice intact. And what I think is really immensely important for our purposes this afternoon, diversity is a concept that provincializes our relationship to the world. Um, and we live during an era that is called globalization or something like that, uh, right? There's supposed to be this instantaneous global transmission of knowledge. The products we purchase for our daily use are produced and distributed by and large on the global market. We wear the sweat of global workers, especially young girls and women. We wear their sweat on our bodies. We consume a disproportionate amount of the world's energy. 
and therefore we live as if the rest of the world were simply there for the purpose of serving and confirming what is represented as our way of life. And I said before that I was trying to avoid mention of, of George Bush, uh, uh, the, the, the man who throughout the world stands for the worst, most xenophobic, most bellicose, most racist, most exploitive elements of this country. And I, you know, I'm, I'm personally embarrassed by having to be represented on a global arena by a figure such as George Bush. But, but embarrassment is perhaps, you know, embarrassment is perhaps too weak of a term, right? Yeah. You know, maybe I should talk about uh, uh, my absolute revulsion that wars are being conducted in our names. And that torture is being justified in our names and that democracy has become a watchword for the most abominable violations of human rights. And you know, as someone who's been around for a long time, uh, and you, you, you're gonna be really surprised at how quickly you begin to get old. <laughs> so prepare yourself for it. I mean, you can't imagine it now. But then those of us who are old can't really imagine being old either, so I always put it that way, because we always think of ourselves, uh, you know, as... Uh, and I mean, I think that's important. We should. Uh, so I, I was going to say, uh, never in my 62 years... Uh, could I have imagined that the hegemony of ultra-right-wing conservatives would produce the kind of situation we find ourselves in today. Not only war and torture, but a political discourse that aspires to persuade us that democracy can become this watchword for terror, for torture, and for the wholesale denial of individual and collective rights. One might go so far as to say that the strategies of the Bush administration involve invoking the fight to save democracy as a justification for the rapid erosion of democratic rights. And so there is torture that is not recognized as torture. There's secret prisons that are not revealed, and when they are revealed, they're justified. There's extraordinary rendition that amounts to routine torture. There's this, this, this prospect of fencing off the Mexican border to prevent people from entering this country whose lives have been destroyed by the impact of global capitalism. And of course, of course, we need to tell uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger that the prison situation is horrendous. Uh, and California, California is at the very bottom of, uh, of the list. 2.2 million people are behind bars, which means that the United States incarcerates proportionately more people than any other country in the world. And the prison has also become the 
paradigm for new modes of democracy or capitalism. You know, it, it occurred to me that if you listen to Bush say democracy, just say, just replace that with capitalism. I mean, it makes a lot more sense. The strategies make a lot more sense because it's not really about democracy. This is a, this is a depressing situation. It's, it's really depressing. But it doesn't have to be depressing. And it's only depressing if you assume that the way things are today is the way they will be tomorrow. Only if you assume that the way things are today is the way they will be tomorrow. And I'll go back to what my mother told me. This is not the way they are supposed to be and they do not have to remain this way. I see that, um, that Barbara has handed me the, the first questions, uh, so, and I have uh, four more pages of notes, <laughs> which are probably, let me see if there's anything really important here, oh yeah, there, everything is really important. Uh, uh, just a summary, I, I'll, I'll, I'll read some of my uh, bullet points. Uh, feminism need not be only about women, nor about gender. We can think about feminism as a methodology that can better enable us to conceptualize and fight for progressive change. And that, that is because the kind of feminism that I'm talking about calls upon us to seek out connections, to make connections that are not that ought to be obvious, but aren't because of the ways in which our perceptions of the world are so deeply ideologically influenced. Uh, so I wanted to ask, what is the relationship between the movement against sexual violence, which we managed, we usually think about as, as individualized, sexual violence against women even, so what is the connection between state violence, state sexual violence against women? Um, think about that. We assume that it's only the individual that can be the perpetrator of such violence and we excuse the state, even though we see what happens in Abu Ghraib, even though we see what happens in Guantanamo, even though we see how sexual coercion, which has been a part of the daily routines of women in prison for decades and decades. And I'm talking, you know, I always like to point out that we take the strip search and the cavity search for granted as something that women deserve just because they happen to be in, in a place that's called a prison that they get to be sexually assaulted and, and, and you know I can point out that I experienced that myself when I was in jail and it does not feel any different from sexual assault by an individual. So we need to make those connections and we need to incorporate this into our um, um, take back the night marches, for example, those connections between state violence and, and, and what we might call privatized individual violence. And then, and then I was going to, I'll just tell you what I was, I was going to talk about Mumia Abu-Jamal, so maybe someone can ask me a question. 
I was going to talk about a number of cases, taking the um, opportunity since I do have, somebody told me it was, uh, what did you say? Your stage. It's my stage, so. <laughs> so I was going to take the opportunity, since it's temporarily my stage, to talk about uh, some of the work that I'm so passionately um, involved in and committed to. I was going to mention uh, uh, the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal. I was going to mention the case of Leonard Peltier. I was going to mention the case of the Cuban Five in Florida. And then I was going to mention the campaign that we called Hands Off Asata. Asata Shakur. Uh, who is living in exile in Cuba after having escaped from prison in the 70s. Um, not very many people escaped from prison. You know, Sata should be applauded. She, she got away. She got away. And she's written a wonderful autobiography, which if you haven't read, you should. It's called simply Asata. But she's celebrating her 60th birthday in, the, in July of next year. So I'm just going to ask you to look out. There'll be events um, all over the California, all over California, hopefully here in the Davis-Sacramento area. Um, because this is a struggle against Homeland Security. Homeland Security has put a million dollar bounty on her head, which basically invites anybody to go to Cuba, kidnap her, and bring her back uh, to the U.S. And we can bring her back, but, but first we have to free her. And so I want to close by uh, uh, saying that, um, with a very, very simple message, a very simple plea. Please get involved. Please try to make a difference. Please try to turn this country around. Thank you.